Welcome to the Album Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Andy, Don, and Dude. Here's Johnny. That's my cover of the intro to tonight's show. <laughs> hey, well done. This is the Album Nerds Podcast. I'm Dude. I got Andy and Don with me. Welcome, gentlemen, to a new year. And uh, you excited to talk about some records, Andy? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that a Beatles cover? <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, good. It's like, what famous co-host can I cover? Like Andy Richter? What would he say? Uh, well, I was thinking, you know, you could do uh, Ed McMahon. Wasn't he the host? He just no, Ed McMahon was was Johnny Carson's sidekick. Oh, and Johnny say. Carson, yeah. Yes, you yes, sir. sir. Are correct. <laughs> contestant. Um, yes, Star Search. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh yeah, Star Search. Oh, oh, oh yeah, he had a good laugh. Uh, yeah, glad to be here, man. Excited to talk about some cover albums. Don. Hey, good looking. What you got cooking? <laughs> uh, Is that the creepiest thing I've ever done on the show? It's, uh, it's probably it's not. close. <laughs> but if there had been eye contact, then we'd definitely have a problem. <laughs> a little wink. <laughs> well, what's worse is when you wink and say wink. I like to do that. Wink. <laughs> All right, so this is the Album Nerds Podcast. We love albums and the album format and uh, listening to stuff we love and then finding new things to love along the way. Today, uh, we've got a great show for you. We're going to be talking about some cover albums, which should be pretty interesting. We're going to first start off with our listening week, some of the stuff that we considered for the show. We'll get into all of our album selections, of course. We'll be answering a question loosely related to today's topic, and then we'll be spinning the wheel of musical discovery to find out what kind of music we're going to be discovering and learning about next time. But this week, why don't we get into it? It's all about the covers. The new edition cover band. New edition. A-D-D-I-T-I-O-N. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about! Prior to the 1960s, it actually was not that common for recording artists to perform songs they wrote themselves. Some songs have been recorded so many times that they've become known as standards. And despite mostly focusing on original material, modern artists continue to cover the works of others, both live and on record. And sometimes they will devote entire albums to cover songs. Today, each of us will present an album that includes only covers. Cool, cool. Yeah, covers a lot of times are more part of a, like a live set and all yeah. that sort of like off the cuff. Maybe back in the day, it'd be on a on a bootleg. People yeah. would want to get their hands on it, but they've been made much more available, especially with the streaming era. Yeah, I stumbled across a couple live recordings that were released as cover albums. Um, the thing I was mostly focused on was trying to find like whole record covers of albums. So, you know, the Flaming Lips kind of famously covered Dark Side of the Moon in live format back in, what's it, 2010s or so. Of course, Fish did like 50 different albums, full covers live on Halloween yeah. Over, yeah. over the years. Um, so that's interesting. I also stumbled across a reggae group called the Easy Star All-Stars. <laughs> who covered uh, a bunch of really well-known records, including um, Radiohead's OK Computer. The other one was Dark Side of the Moon, <laughs> of course. Dark Side's pretty pretty uh, popular selection here. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of bluegrass type of cover albums or tribute albums as well, but uh, sort of along that lines where they didn't feel genuine somehow. They felt kind of like like a way to sell something for five bucks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's definitely the, 
the slippery slope of, you know, just trying to please audience by doing something that's very well known. You know, that's definitely a uh, consideration with these types of records. How'd you do, Don? I actually, I mean, the album I ended up uh, choosing that came to me right away. But I did uh, check out uh, Susie and the Banshees through the Looking Glass. Um, in fact, I, I think their most or their highest charting single is their version of Dear Prudence, uh, which which is on that. And then, um, well, I didn't want to do it because we did it before. But um, last year in that great american songbook episode mm. andy uh, brought us the uh, brian wilson uh, reimagines gershwin uh, and that's right. actually an album i've kind of stuck with uh, particularly if you're in like a w- w- hanging out with some senior citizens like in their 70s and 80s <laughs> you know yeah. it's uh, it, it really works it's the largest part of our listening yes. audience yeah, so. uh, yeah you can definitely you know play this at the bingo hall yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i did uh, i did look for full cover albums and i did find like carla Bozilich. I'm not sure how to say her last name. Um, she's like an alt country rock type of artist, independent, uh, redheaded stranger, Willie Nelson's album. But I've talked about that so many times on the show already that just seemed <laughs> off limits. <laughs> and then where I was really close on was John Lennon's Rock and Roll and David Bowie's Pinups, both full of cover songs, but neither of them really uh, turned, made them fully their own. It was kind of more fan service. Mm-hmm. And maybe in John Lennon's case, fulfilling a album contract, he didn't record again for five years after that album came out. So I ended up making another choice that was a little nearer and dearer to my heart and something I enjoyed uh, when it came out. The spaghetti incident? Uh, that was on the list for sure, but uh, maybe some other time. All right. So uh, why don't we get into our choices? You choo-choo choose me? Any success story from Africa doesn't interest any media. They are so eager and hungry for horrible story from Africa. Why? If Africa does bad, everybody do bad. All right, that was Angelique Kijo. We're going to be talking about her cover of the Talking Heads album, Remain in Light. This is the 13th studio album from the singer-songwriter from Benin, Africa, which is located in Western Africa. Had to look that one up. The record includes some guest spots from Tony Allen on drums and Ezra Conan from Vampire Weekend, I believe, contributing some mm. vocals, as well as artists Blood Orange and Antibalus. We are going to play probably the most well-known cut from this record. This is a little bit of Once in a Lifetime. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? Yeah, it's a little bit of a different take on that song there. Still, you know, the core of the song is still relatively intact, but she definitely adds some some Afrobeat influences, I would say, and kind of a, it's a larger sound to the to the record as a whole. The three words I used to describe this album are transatlantic conversations through time. The original record came out back in it's 1980, I believe, and this came out in 2018. That's kind of interesting because, I mean, in Talking Heads, that record was largely kind of to promote or at least, you know, identify some of their Talking Heads influences, you know, largely, which were coming from Africa and that mm-hmm. sort of yeah. world music sound, which really wasn't even a thing in 1980s. That, that terminology wasn't really used. But now, you know, fast forward like 40 years, you know, it's kind of interesting to hear someone from Africa 
partnering with some African some African artists, um, kind of reimagining what someone else was kind of reinterpreting from their original sound. So it's kind of like this interesting conversation over time. That is a cool twist to the whole thing, to uh, in some ways legitimizing the spirit of what the Talking Heads were were doing. Right. I mean, they took influences and turned it into something new, but then that something new could be reinterpreted back into what its roots are. And that's really interesting. Yeah. It's like she's saying, you're not posers or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's adding some validation, I guess, to what they were doing. I mean, it helps when you make like one of the greatest records, you know, of that, of that decade or that era. You know, such interesting songs here and such, you know, interesting ideas, even outside of the, the world music influence or that world music sound. We talked about Remain in Light way back on episode 178, um, which was the 1980 episode. Check it out if you want our full conversation there. Same as it ever was. <laughs> Meantime, why don't we play a little bit from another track on this record? This is The Great Curve. So that's uh, very much in the spirit of the original and fitting for Kijo as it has that uh, African theme. Uh, includes the line, the world moves on a woman's hips, uh, which David Byrne had used after reading uh, a book by Robert Ferris Thompson called African Art in Motion. Mm, nice. Yeah. So, you know, like the rest of the album, it's even more African than the uh, than the original. <laughs> So the, the three words I, I chose to describe the album are Benin down the house. Get it? Because it's Benin is the... <laughs> oh, man. That's an Africa joke, people. Wow. Good one. Uh, so, you know, the, the best covers pay homage to the original, but simultaneously add a unique perspective. In this case, it's not that the perspective is unique, you know, because it already was soaked in that African influence. Um, but again, you know, it just sort of takes it further in that direction. In some cases, she's actually adding some uh, lyrics that are in the native language of Benin. Yeah, I thought that was really particularly interesting to hear. You're right. That is interesting. <laughs> So overall, you know, I think that it's it's well executed, you know, and I think it would probably introduce fans of hers or fans of African music to the Talking Heads, and of course, I I think fans of the Talking Heads or or you know rock music or pop music, you know, this might be a a doorway into uh, into African music and uh, and Angelique Kijo. I will say, you know, as far as cover albums go, I think this is probably the most challenging type. You know, one when you're actually recreating an entire album. Yeah. I mean, those albums are so precious, you know, that you're really, you know, risking, you know, kind of alienating people, I think. Especially if it's mm-hmm. something known, like really well known and genre defining, like the Talking Heads with many of their albums, but that release in particular. And uh, to, to walk the line, first of all, doing it effectively, that's tough enough. But then to make a record that is good enough to stand alone, like that's really weird to me. You could hear this, accept it fully as its own thing, and hear the Talking Heads album two years later and be like, eh, they did an okay job with <laughs> with this album. But, you that's, know, it, uh, it's... an interesting point. Yeah. In this case... I feel like this is good enough to stand on its own, which is yeah, without even thinking about hmm. it being a Talking Heads cover album. Yeah, I think I would 
to some degree, to some degree with you on, on a few tracks. Um, I think what's largely missing from Angelique's take on Remain on Light is like that sort of like conflicted dissidence that I got from the original, like that David Burns sort of like, he always seems conf- conflicted, like in especially right. his lyrics and stuff. This album feels much more joyous and just kind of more face value to me i guess than than the original yeah i think like choosing choosing a side right choosing the the joyous side yeah instead of being conflicted that seems to be what what the choice was here for sure let's hear another cut from the record this is a little bit of cross-eyed and painless I've heard the Talking Heads remaining light plenty of times, but in listening to this album, this was one of the tracks where I recognized it. Mm-hmm. This particular song is has themes, the original themes of urban stress, paranoia, and sort of a rhythmical rant, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of how humans shape and label things. And there's definitely that conflict and darkness in the original. This, again, sounds like a celebration of that light. The arrangement is true to the original, but it feels more organic. I think that's kind of the case for the whole album because of the nature of the sounds. It feels more like live or musical instrumentation and less like experimentation with different types of sounds. The three words I used to describe the album are influences come alive. One of the influences on the Talking Heads and on that album Remain in Light in particular kind of takes the main stage effectively here. And I think that's kind of a big deal. I read something that uh, when when she was in college, she heard the album and said, hey, that's not rock. That's not, that's that's us. Those are African sounds. Right. Years later, having an opportunity to remake the album, I think is, uh, is pretty cool. I really enjoyed it. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you guys enjoyed. We'll just mention to Angelique, she is a, a well-known artist in her own right. She began releasing materials back in 1989. She's won five Grammys. She's also a um, political activist. She was listed as one of the most 100 influential people by Time Magazine just a couple of years ago. So she's still out there, you know, being very active, you know, outside of just covering the talking heads. Yeah. <laughs> so once again, the album is Remain in Light by Angelique Kijo. Check it out. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, do us a solid and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Maybe we made you laugh or you discovered an album you enjoy. Leaving a review keeps the show going and helps other music fans find us. Um, he was a manic depressive alcoholic that drank and drugged himself to an early grave at the age of 29. But he was also one of the most influential songwriters of the century. Mm-hmm. So I guess that's a brief... Uh, wow, that's a fun way to start. Yeah. <laughs> So my choice for a cover album is from The The. It's a collection of Hank Williams songs called Hanky Panky, uh, released in February of 1995. Uh, this is the fifth studio album by The The. The The is sort of, uh, I don't know, kind of have a strange place in the, the world of sort of British modern rock. Um, never had like huge commercial success, but they have always sort of been there. A little more eclectic, a little more experimental. The The has just been a vehicle for the singer-songwriter uh, Matt Johnson. And, um, and they've had like a rotating cast of, um, of musicians and every album is very different from the last. But so this is their, their tribute to the great Hank Williams. Here's uh, a, a track called Weary Blues from Waitin'. Weary Blues. 
the original demo for Weary Blues from Waitin' by uh, Hank Williams was recorded in 1951. There's suspicions that it may have been co-written by Ray Price. Um, after Hank Williams died in 1953, uh, his backing group, the Drifting Cowboys, along with Ray Price, went in and did some overdubs, uh, and it was released as a single posthumously. But, um, you know, the arrangement there is is pretty true to the original. Just, I mean, the big difference is the vocals. Yeah. I don't know how familiar uh, people are with Hank Williams, but is he has kind of this wailing, kind of whiny, sometimes yodely um, style mm-hmm. of singing, and uh, Matt Johnson certainly doesn't do that. <laughs> Not a lot of yodeling on this record. No. Uh, the three words I chose to describe the album are uh, praise the Lord. And uh, that's a line from uh, the Hank Williams song, I Saw the Light. You know, I, at least I, I think in the world of, of country music and classic songwriting, I, I think uh, Hank Williams is kind of a, a, a god. Matt Johnson and The The at the time were sort of, they had more of like a urban electro blues rock sound. And they yeah. basically give that treatment to, to these songs. I think Hank Williams songs lyrically are just super depressing. You know, I mean, this is just a, a self-destructive guy that's seemingly constantly heartbroken. Yeah. But what's funny, though, about the, the album title here, Hanky Panky, is it makes it like a playful thing. and <laughs> Like they're like love songs that are. It's yeah. not playful at all. And I think maybe originally, I, I think you could say Hank Williams was kind of playful, even though his lyrics were dark. Yeah. Um, but you don't get a lot of that on this. I think it's it's mostly dark. They're smoking the reefer doing the hanky-panky with bull. <laughs> okay, well, let, let's uh, uh, let's hear another track. This is I'm a Long Gone Daddy. I'm a Long Gone Daddy. I'm a Long Gone Daddy. I don't need you. Yeah, so the uh, original song was released in 1950 in kind of an energetic honky-tonk tune. Um, basically, a tumultuous personal life of Hank Williams. He was restless, and it was just about a restless man constantly seeking adventure and freedom, even at the cost of stable relationships, his own health probably, but, you know, loneliness, wanderlust, and the consequences of leading a life on the road. So to describe the album in three words, I went with Falls Off Horse. So taking that (laughs) cowboy imagery, right, it starts off with some swagger. And it's really interesting. It's like, wow, you know, he's they're doing something different with these songs. But about halfway through, it just kind of peters out. And I feel like it was sort of just the same treatment on every song. And, and it wasn't about the song. I feel like just the treatment was applied to everything. It wasn't so specific to each. Like Long Gone Daddy, to me, was the one that felt the most specifically engineered to sound a certain way because of the particular song and the meaning of the song. And some of the rest, especially uh, like A Tear in My Beer and others, uh, the the more ballady types, just are totally flat. There's just nothing interesting. And that's it just kind of lost me uh, halfway through. Yeah, I thought Long Gone Daddy felt like they put the most effort into that track in terms of like the production and the arrangement of it like sounded very flushed out unlike a lot like those songs you mentioned just did not feel like they had the same level of detail and attention put to them yeah it's not a bad album it's just kind of between okay and average for me it started off though with me going hey this is this is cool i I think i saw the the actually live you did yeah don dragged me along to a show in canada (laughs) wow all right well here's a a, another track that is very different from the original this is uh, i saw the light 
like that one too. It, it has a jangly, like some one-hit wonder band from the '60s on Ed <laughs> Sullivan's show. It's got that kind of feel to it. Yeah, there's a little jangle in there. Yeah, a fairly recognizable Hank Williams song, but um, I think their cover here literally stood out as being kind of its own thing. Yes. Yeah, and I kind of, as Dude was saying, I was initially like kind of like into this idea of it being such a you know moody, different take on on these old country standards. But yeah, I don't know. It does it does wear thin by the end. So my three words are trading twang for tood. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a moody record, but I think that's. That's okay. I, I didn't dislike that. I think probably what I most got caught up on was like sort of the lack of of detail and kind of like attention to some of the later songs on the record. But I did appreciate just the general risk of putting out Hank Williams' cover record this far into your career in like the 90s. I can't imagine this was what the fans were clamoring for, especially, you know, UK, uh, you know, modern rock fans. Yeah, it was it was not. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, you know, I, I saw somewhere that that uh, they were planning to do a series of cover albums after this. The fact that it didn't happen tells me something. You know that uh, this mm. did not work. I believe this actually this may have ended their record deal. Oh, really? <laughs> this, this album, <laughs> yeah, it, it didn't go well. <laughs> Yeah. I don't think it's that bad. By any <laughs> That's the danger, right, of, of covering a particular artist, especially one that is so far outside of what your mm-hmm. your audience. Your audience. And yeah. are, do you think you're going to capture country fans? No. So I, I, I think maybe maybe it was a little arrogant to try that at that stage where I don't think the the was established as like a cornerstone act yet yeah. at this point. So. Maybe it was just so selfless, you know, because it was more about bringing attention to a great mm-hmm. artist, right? At, mm-hmm. You know, at, at the expense of you know commercial right. success. Yeah, that's that's a good way to spend it. Could be. Yeah, totally. <laughs> it's hard to hard to replicate uh, Hank Williams in terms of quality of songwriting. So you could say there's a tear in my pint, you know. And do the <laughs> right. British thing. Give it the British treatment. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I guess I was just going to ask the question. I assume Hank Williams was an influential artist for Mr. The. Is that was that the case, or uh, what was his history with them? Or well, you know, it, it, as far as those like British kind of synth pop, new wavy artists, you know, I, I would say Matt Johnson always had sort of like a rootsier uh, approach to the, to the music. So, you know, I'm positive that you know he was definitely you know into into Hank Williams, and I think just listening to this record, it, it kind of just illustrates how like Hank Williams sort of that bluesy country style is sort of underneath uh, all rock and like even modern rock uh, at mm-hmm. the time. So uh, yeah. yeah. With their collection of Hank Williams covers, that's the, the with hanky panky. Hanky panky. <laughs> Excuse me. I'd like to ask you a few questions. Now it's time for deep questions with Don. Uh, so, um, well, we're podcasters. We're not recording artists, although I, I uh, suspect that all of us maybe had a dream of being recording artists at, at one time. Uh, but if you were a successful recording artist and you were going to record a cover album, what songs would you want to include? Man, this is a, a deep layered question, Don. I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're really bringing the deep this year. We're going deep and we're going hard. <laughs> well, if I was in a band, I imagine I would either be in like a ska punk band 
or like a death metal group, maybe. <laughs> Just knowing, assuming I would be young when I was in a band. I'm probably past band age, realistically, at this point. But uh, anyway, so I think I'd be most interested if I was in a death metal group, maybe I would want to cover something that was like on as far opposite on the spectrum as possible. Kind of like that, that did to bring in the, the Hank Williams fans over to our side. Sure. <laughs> Clearly a good commercial choice. So yeah, I think if I if I was in a, a metal group, maybe we would do some like Miles Davis covers or something. Like bring some like jazz over into the death metal space. I think uh, I think a song like uh, Freddie Freeloader maybe would work really well uh, with some death metal growls and uh, bass guitar slowed down. So yeah, I don't know. I'd be curious to hear that. I've never heard anything like that. So <laughs> make it happen. I mean, I. In my youth, I would have said like a you know hard rock, um, grungy type band type of thing. But yeah. now I think I would do country versions of which has been there's a lot of that country music taking pop music and turning it into country. But I'd like to take um, you know songs like uh, "Head Over Heels" by Tears for Fears and turn it into a country song, or mm. um, some of some of NXS's stuff, like maybe even need you tonight, see where that goes. But um, I, I, I think, I think taking that era of like that eighties pop era and turning it into country songs would be very fun. And the songs tended to be melancholy enough and have some of this, the mm -hmm. right types of themes to work yeah, that might translate. instead of getting too, instead of getting too crazy. You used to do that song. I remember you playing that on the guitar, that seal song, crazy. Yes. Yes, I did. That'd be a good one. Mine was, mine was a little more not crazy, but I also used to do, uh, I used to do the beach boys when I grew up to be a man and I made it this super sort of lo-fi droney sort of delivery mm, was this the uh sonic douche days <laughs> uh, yes it was but it was my my other so yeah that was that was from the void that was my other project at the time the Ooh. void wow mm -hmm. like it nice so you know for me if you know if i try to imagine what my recording career would be like i i think it would just be me and my casio sk1 you know so i think i do some really I guess more kind of low fidelity, you know, just cheap things on the little mini synthesizer. But like instead of, I mean, so often, you know, people are going after these great albums that they, they want to recreate, you know, like the dark side of the moon or something. I, I think that's, that's a mistake. And so maybe you go the opposite direction. You just take an album that's total shit or, and, uh, wow. you know, maybe like the first <laughs> Nickelback album or something and try <laughs> to, and try to. <laughs> Come on, Nickelback. Come on, poor Nickelback. <laughs> Maybe you could do Nickelback in the style of Creed. <laughs> oh, God, please. Things we don't need. <laughs> All right, well, what songs would be on your cover album? Uh, let us know. Uh, hit us up on the socials, Facebook, Instagram, and threads. Also on Discord, albumnerds.com slash Discord. This is Metallica performing if you're happy and you know it. All right. So. <laughs> Metallica Kids Bop? What's that? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I went with, once again, here we are, Metallica. I promise. This is the only Metallica record I will talk about in 2024. 
Well, Even if they come out with a surprise project, I promise all of you, mark this day down. give it a break. So I went with Metallica's Garage Inc., which came out November 24th of 1998. It's two discs, it was two CDs, and I focused on the new material recorded in 1998 on disc one only. So basically, it was uh, covering artists that influenced Metallica, spanning new wave of British heavy metal, hardcore punk, just popular songs, and uh, they had a desire to change after three serious albums and just do something fun. They also packaged it with old covers that were released on EPs and singles. That second disc is other covers they've done over the years. So why don't we start off? It was a single from the album, one of the more recognizable songs. This is Turn the Page. Okay, yeah. That's good stuff. <laughs> they should have done all the all Bob Seeger songs. Yeah, oh, that'd man. be interesting. Working on a night moves. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> there was uh, there's there's actually on YouTube a documentary of when they were recording this and they did a bunch of interviews and one of the things James Hetfield says was that he grew up hating Bob Seeger. Mm. Because it was not metal, you know, it was, it was just so boring and bland to him. But then the song really connected with now the life he was living at this at this point in his career. So yeah, turn the page. Very well known, made famous on the Live Bullet album by Bob Seger. The saxophone solo on the original, played by Alto Reed, is really recognizable and iconic. But Metallica's rendition is heavier, more rock oriented, and. Uh, it was really well received in some ways. I think that it better communicates the frustration part of being on the road. And Bob Seger's was more into the sadness mm-hmm. of it, a little more depressing sounding. The three words I used to describe this album are metallicized for the fans. So immediately after the reload tour, they wanted to you know package up all the old songs and release them, all the old covers. And then they... Uh, did 11 new ones for a two-disc release. The packaging is great. Really big booklet in the CD. Tons of details about the artists, the songs they chose, the reasons why. But they had the freedom to interpret these songs how, their way, especially since they had, after Load and Reload and the Black Album kind of redefined their sound. It's a little more groove metal hard rock, and I think they were kind of uh, enjoying stretching their legs in that direction. So what do you guys think, you know, this this other type, this type of cover album, which is songs by multiple artists, mm-hmm. can that be a con- cohesive work of art, or is it just a bunch of songs done cool? Discuss amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in this case where it's like they're really trying to – you know, show their influences and kind of like their roots and give homage to maybe some lesser known groups from back in the day. Yeah, I'd never heard of Diamond Head until this album. Until Metallica. I'm sure a lot of metalheads in the US had not heard of a lot of these British groups at this point. Um, so it, it, that felt good to me. I almost felt like I was getting to know the band on a more deeper level, sort of, you know? Um, mm. 
from that degree. So I think I, in that regard, it can work. Yeah. So yeah, this the, the album covers things like Diamond Head and Black Sabbath, Misfits, uh, Discharge. Those are kind of things you'd expect to be influences of Metallica, uh, but they spread it out a little bit. There's some other artists and types and styles that uh, Metallica makes their own. So why don't we listen to a little bit Whiskey in the Jar. Something like the fountain Something like to hear To hear the cannonball roaring Me I was just remembering those guys from Battery when they oh, did the yeah. song, the guy would be like, yeah. "Me, I like fucking." Yes, <laughs> the the Metallica cover band that we frequented. Now, funny, you know, before we get into the song, funny part is uh, they did a Metallica did a five date tour for this to promote this album, and they played the covers, and then they had a cover band play Metallica songs to open, and that cover band was Battery, the ones with the clever turn. <laughs> I like sleeping. <laughs> I feel like I saw them at some point too. They're a pretty popular cover band. <laughs> I, I took you to see them. Did you? Okay. Yeah. Whiskey in the Jar, originally by Thin Lizzy back in the early 70s. Enjoyed the original, really enjoyed the Metallica cover there. I remember that being very popular on the Modern yes. Rocks radio at the time. Um, so popular, in fact, my sister owned a copy of Garage Inc. Nice. I haven't met your sister, but uh, she sounds cooler than you. That was unusual <laughs> for her to own a Metallica record. So that, that says a little something about the crossover appeal that this record had at the time. Three words that I used to describe this album are edited on carbon monoxide. I think these guys what? maybe left the garage door closed a little too long. Oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot here. I mean, I wouldn't even listen to the second disc for the show. I just felt, and I do feel this way about a lot of Metallica records, especially after the 80s, there's just so much here that could have been cut, in my opinion. Or maybe it would have worked better in a live setting. Especially, I'm not a huge fan of Merciful Fate, but there is an 11-minute amalgamation (laughs) of some of their songs in the middle of this record. Yes, a medley, if you will. A medley. (laughs) To me, it was more of an amalgamation. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. I didn't love that track in particular, um, along with a couple others that I just didn't think really worked amazingly. But then at the end of the record comes along their cover of uh, Leonard Skinner's "Tuesday's Gone." It's kind of a stripped down, uh, yeah, not quite acoustic, but uh, you know, more intimate affair. That uh, man, I thought that worked really well. So I mean, there's, this record does have moments on it. Yeah, it's got some guests in it too, like Les Claypool and. John Popper on the harmonica. Uh, I was wondering who was playing that harmonica. Yeah, he was played in a radio station performance. Gotcha. That was good. All right. So uh, one of my other favorites on here, and thankfully Don chose to focus on it. It's an interesting twist on Loverman. Surprising choice there. In the cave. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, so Lover Man is uh, was originally recorded by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds uh, on their 1994 album Let Love In. Um, Cave said it was supposed to be just a throwaway song about desire, and the the, the protagonist is particularly weak and dysfunctional. Uh, Metallica, I, I think, really captures the the spirit of the original, and of course, adding some you know metal edge to it. I would say actually the Metallica version is probably more accessible uh, than the than the Cave version, uh, but 
I, I think they do a really cool job with that. Great. Uh, the three words I chose to describe the album are just Metallica origin story. Um, and I, I think Andy said something similarly. Yeah, it's it's when they were playing a gig in that lab and then the chemicals exploded and turned them into super rockers. Right, but in that lab was uh, <laughs> Merciful Fate. And, yes, uh, you know, exactly. <laughs> All those influences. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think this is is, is really cool. Um, I mean, I think the sort of the the hardcore death metal songs are probably easier for them, uh, and I really appreciate where they they stretched out into other areas of rock like Loverman and Turn the Page. I mean, Turn the Page is just. I mean, I think they just do an amazing job with that. Um, in fact, like when I hear the Bob Seger version of it, I, I am kind of let down. Yeah, by me it. too. <laughs> um, and that's pretty rare uh, for me. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it, I think we already knew at this point that Metallica was more than just thrash metal. But, yep. you know, I think they just kind of reaffirmed that with, with, with this set. Yeah, I, I, I loved it at the time. It was probably one of my favorite Metallica records for a while just because it was so different. It exposed me to some artists I wasn't familiar with and it reinvented some songs that didn't necessarily thrill me before, but because Metallica did them, I I found ways to appreciate the originals as well. And I think that's probably the the best case scenario you can get out of a, an album full of covers is that not only do you please your audience, but maybe you send them in the direction of the originals as well. <laughs> All right, so that was Garage Inc. Disc 1 by Metallica. Go check it out. And there's a lot of other covers on Disc 2, some of which are a little disturbing. So yeah, yeah. this one is the safer bet. What's the with you? All right. So we've uh, spent the, the early part of this new year immersing ourselves in cover albums. Um, what else have you guys been listening to? Well, as often happens this time of year, there's a lot of year-end lists come out, and I always enjoy kind of seeing what other music reviewers have been enjoying in the year that I may have missed. There's a couple of things I'll mention that I've been particularly enjoying. It's a record from King Cruel, singer-songwriter. Someone you might enjoy, Don. I don't know if you're familiar with him. The record's called Space Heavy. It's, uh, it's a very interesting listen. I've been enjoying it. Could he change his name to King Melancholy? Then we definitely could get Don on board. <laughs> He's very melancholy. So that's, okay. It's definitely up there. But it's also like a little avant-garde. Let's see... I'll mention one other record here, too, from a Spanish artist by the name of Sofia Cortez, I believe is how you would say that. The record's called Madres. It's kind of an experimental, it's electronic, but there's also a strong like pop component to it. Really been enjoying that. I wish I had listened to it earlier in the year. It may have made my uh, year-end list, but uh, hmm. okay. regardless, uh, lots of good things in 2023. It was a good year. Yeah, so for me, I didn't really get a chance to listen to anything else with all the holidays hoopla going on. So what I did do was go to the record store, and I kept running into this copy of Johnny Cash's Bitter Tears on vinyl, which we talked about on episode 164, 60s Country. I really fell in love with the album when uh, we talked about it there. I hadn't heard it before. It's the Native American Yes. Yeah, Bitter Tears, Ballads of the American Indian, and uh, came out in 64. I was hoping to find an old used copy, but I found a new copy uh, re-released in 2015 on, was it, 180 gram vinyl. Thick boy. And... Yeah, it's a UK pressing, so I, I'm I'm very happy with the acquisition, and I will be spinning physically spinning one of my new favorite Johnny Cash records. So that's exciting. 
Yeah, well, I've uh, you know I'm still trying to decipher the difference between the the two Peter Gabriel mixes. Um, <laughs> but uh, in addition to that, um, actually, I saw the film Maestro the other day, um, which is on Netflix, and it's about Leonard Bernstein, Leonard Bernstein, and it's more about his personal life. But there's some really cool musical scenes, um, like of him conducting and stuff like that. So I definitely recommend that. Cool. Sounds like some fun stuff to check out for uh, others interested. What are you guys into lately? Let us know. Hit us up on the socials, Instagram, Facebook, and threads. Also on Discord, albumnerds.com slash Discord. It will be a discovery of extraordinary value. Gather around, boys and girls. It is, once again, everyone's favorite time. Time to discover what we have in store next week. Music has always been known as a vehicle to pass on stories and share experiences. Country music is a genre that carries on that tradition. Next week, you will be exploring some of the stories that country music chronicles so well. So country albums featuring songs that tell stories. Some of what country music can do best is that storytelling. So that'll be fun to dive into. Yeah. Don't forget, you can always suggest topics for the Wheel of Musical Discovery on our website, albumnerds.com. Do it. You can also vote for any ongoing Album Nerds Hall of Fame nominations. Aren't any at the moment, but be sure to check back soon because I'm sure there will be. They're coming. Okay, who's your favorite country music storyteller? Let us know. What else are you listening to? Join fellow Album Nerds on Discord at albumnerds.com slash Discord. You can email us at podcast at albumnerds.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and threads at Album Nerds. You can please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so via PayPal at albumnerds.com slash support. Thank you for listening to the Album Nerds podcast. We'll catch you next time with some Country Chronicles. Catch everybody then. Thanks for listening. Happy New Year, by the way. Your cheating heart will make you weep. Oh, that's Hanky Panky. You'll cry and cry. I think you popped a vein. Pop <laughs> 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 <Of> my eardrum. <laughs> Sorry. I always forget to back up from the mic. <laughs> <laughs>